First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from uh, speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his eyes are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that we look around and we would see people as our brothers and sisters, not see them as our enemies, not see them as obstacles, not see them as people that we have to step over in in order to obtain the thing that we desire, but we would see them as family. To lift them up, Lord, as you came down into this earth, you became a servant, a bondservant for our sake. May we take on the same heart. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, convict our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. How do you view the people around you? How do you view the people around you? Because how you view the people around you will obviously determine how you interact with that person. Do you view that person that's to your left or to your right as a friend, family, one of your best friends? Do you view that person as an obstacle, a person who gets on your nerves, gets in your way, and maybe not the person that's actually next to you, obviously, right, because you wouldn't be sitting next to them, or maybe you would, frenemies, but you have people in your life that you may look at as a person who is in your way, or Maybe even your friends. You don't necessarily see them as obstacles because they're doing what you want them to do for you. But the minute they don't do what you want them to do, you're ready to find a new friend. I'll give you an example. Not a personal example because that's awkward. Let's say that you trust someone with some secret that you don't tell too many people. And you're really good friends with this person until you find out that that person told other people about that secret they promised they would never tell. So now you're left with a challenge. When that friend tells other people about that deep, dark secret that you don't want no one else to know, and that's why you told them in the first place because you thought you could trust them, what do you do with that person now? Do you continue to be friends? 
Well, some of you think, well, no, obviously not, because the reason why they're my friend in the first place is so that I can trust them and they can trust me. And if they have broken that trust, then they have broken that friendship. So I think we take often this view of friendship, this view of how to relate with one another beyond just friends. We use it with potential friends. What do I mean by that? When you go into a new school, when you start a new sports team, you start going to a new church, a new gathering where there's people, you go off to college, you're in class, you find people around you that you want to befriend. But you often befriend the people that you feel like you can trust. Or at least you befriend the people that you can obtain something from. You befriend the smart Asian guy in your math class because, duh, he's going to help you out, right? Except when that Asian friend in math class is Alan Kahn because you copy off his homework and I'm like, whatever, copy off my homework and they all get Fs. Like, what the heck, man? I'm like, I'm only half Asian. <laughs> That was bad. <laughs> but isn't it true that you often are looking for things from people when you enter in friendships and relationships? I'm, I'm not so sure that that's what the Bible is teaching us for to do. And so I went to a conference in North Carolina this past week. As I went to this conference, I went alone. Had absolutely no one else to go with me. Just so you know, I'm not telling you the name of the church, but at this church... This church has been around for only 10 years, has over 20,000 people. I walk into this church on a Sunday, lines out the building of people, people everywhere. So I didn't know a soul. And going to this church, I was trying to think, if I was just attending this church, I'm not a pastor, nothing, I just want to get involved in this church, would it be easy for me to make friends, to assimilate, to get involved in a group? And so when I was thinking about that, you know, there wasn't one person who followed up with me like, said, hey man, let's, let's hang out. There was a person who invited me to play volleyball, went and played volleyball with a bunch of people that were on staff at the church and stuff that Sunday. Um, but here's the point. A lot of people go into church looking to receive things from people. Instead of thinking about, I have something to give to other people. Friendship is not about receiving, it's about giving. And so I went to go play volleyball with these kids, not because I needed friendship and not because I needed to play volleyball, not because I was lonely. If I was lonely, I wouldn't go by myself to a conference in North Carolina for four days by myself. So I go in this coffee shop. I'm invited to go play volleyball. I go play volleyball with everyone on staff. And I think I want to leave something with these people. Even though I'll probably never see most of them ever again in my life, I have something I can give to them. And so there was a volunteer, and as I was sitting down with this volunteer, he was just making chit-chat with me, talking about where I'm from, I'm going to this conference, cool. And I asked him, in what area of service does he serve at the church? And he told me, right now he's taking a hiatus. He served in their, kind of like one of their classes, uh, team ministry, a whole bunch of different ministries, and right now he's in a spiritual dry season, and he's not really serving anywhere. And so I had read that morning about Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, it's about when Jesus has risen from the tomb and the disciples are all together in one room 
And some other disciples come in and tell them, hey, the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. And it says they remembered his words, but it seemed idle to them, and they didn't believe him. So here, very clearly, you have a picture of the gospel being presented to disciples, apostles. And it just seemed like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. It just didn't affect them. And so I was relating to a situation saying, you go through that dry season doesn't mean that you're not Christian. doesn't mean you're not a disciple of Jesus. So what's the solution? You're in this dry season. The words seem idle to you. The gospel, the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead doesn't have the effect. What do you do? Well, from that group of apostles, there was one that got up. His name was Peter. And he ran towards the tomb. When he saw that it was empty, he marveled. And I told him the key is not trying to find a new method of like, oh, well, I need to, I guess I have to have a new method of like waking up and praying for five hours and then I'll... You just have to go and see Jesus. And when you go and encounter Jesus, that is what gets you out of the dry season. Not your methods, not your discipline, not your like five-step process or your goals or whatever. Just encountering Jesus is enough to move people. And I give him examples throughout the Bible. Job, suffering. We heard about this with Pastor Sandy Adams a couple weeks ago. Never got a reason for why he was suffering. But when he encountered God, that's when he repented and that's when he changed. So as I'm sharing this with him, the light bulb was clicking, you know, like light bulb went off, things were, the wheels were turning in his mind, he was excited, and he said, I just came here for volleyball. And he's like, but what you're saying really, really means something to me. And when I was sharing with him, and I shared with a couple other people, other volunteers, and the point was, that made the conference for me. Yeah, there's cool music, there's cool things. But the most fun part for me was being able to share with other people and seeing that even though I just met these people five minutes ago, I had a lasting effect on their life. That's pretty awesome. And a lot of people, the whole reason why I share that story is, is very simply this. A lot of people are looking to receive from relationships rather than giving to relationships. And because of that, now you're always fighting. Now, Peter, when he's writing this letter to the Christians scattered abroad, you can almost imagine that he's intervening between a brotherly dispute. You ever have friends that are fighting all the time? They're, every time they're together, they always argue. And it drives you crazy. And eventually, you have to intervene, be the mediator, and say, hey, listen, you, you, just stop. And you almost get that sense when Peter says this in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you're called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So he gives us this command because if you're always looking to receive, the problem is this. All of us are sinful, terrible people. All of us. Not one of you is perfect. Since you will make a mistake, even relationships, I mean, how many of us haven't honestly made the mistake of saying something we probably shouldn't have said, breaking the trust of someone that we thought we could keep the secret or whatever? How many of us have done that to somebody else and wish that we could be forgiven, but the person has already written us off? I'll never trust you ever again. That happens when... We're not willing to look at the person as a person I can love. 
I have a friend so that I can be friendly to that person. The reason this person's in my life is not so I can receive, so I can give. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong, not to, it's, it's, it's wrong to want to receive from somebody. But when you are looking to receive all of your trust, all of the love from a person, the person's always going to fail you. Whereas if you receive all of your love vertically, if vertical relationships are a relationship between man and God, horizontal relationships are between you and other people, if you receive vertical love, now you can lift the horizon. Everyone who's on your horizon, everyone who's in a horizontal relationship, you can lift them up vertically and say, this is the person I want to encourage. And so he says, all of you be of one mind. Be on the same page. What does he mean by that? Does he mean all of you should be like mindless zombies and just think the exact same thoughts? Like do the exact same things? Like maybe, and I've had like people say this before, they don't want to be a Christian because they feel like they'll lose their personality and be like this mindless drone. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying by being of one mind? It means thinking in harmony. Working together. Being on the same page. One of my favorite things to do is when I'm writing music, you'll be like, back especially when we had the band, you'd have like one person playing electric guitar, one person playing bass, one person playing keys. When it's all in harmony and you have those notes that are all just coming together and then someone brings in the bells. Someone brings in like, oh, there's a, a flute patch on my keyboard and they put it in and it just sounds so perfect and it just fits that gap. And as you're listening to it, you're like, yes, this was meant to be there. All of us should be working in harmony and so that all of us are thinking, we are missing somebody here. And then someone comes in and they have love to offer. They have a personality to offer. And it's like your friend group just grew because you added this person who was missing. Now, sometimes you have that. Like you have your little cliques and you're like, we don't want it. We're so tight knit that we can't add anyone else to our clique. But that's not how it's meant to be. We're all supposed to be on the same mind, same page, thinking in harmony. But many of us are fighting with each other because we forget that we are a family. Those of you that are into sports, you know, especially people that can't play basketball and people that aren't used to playing on a team like myself, as you're playing, amateurs often will fight for the ball with the person on the same team as they get the rebound. It's like, same team. They're just like, they're in it. Like, just like, dude, that person's on your team. What are you doing? And because you were fighting, both of you lost the ball and the other team gets it. How many of us are fighting with members of the same family, the same team? How many times did Peter and the apostle forget this? As they were walking, the disciples with Jesus. Just, oh, Jesus, um, uh, quick question. Uh, who amongst us is the greatest? I just, you know, like, I know that you, you don't lie to us, right? So, like, there's obviously probably one of us that excels far beyond every other disciple. I just want to know who that is. Unless it's not me, in which case, don't tell me. Oftentimes, they would fight over silly things. But how many of us, even though we look at them and we laugh, we kind of feel the same way when it comes to relationships. When someone says, oh, this is my best friend, you're like, no, I, I thought I was your best friend. All those times we stayed up late. Like, well, they stayed up later. And they talked for five hours on the phone, not three hours. Like, no. 
But we're supposed to be looking at relationships. Please don't spend five hours on the phone. Don't do that. Just, if, you, if you can spend five hours on the phone, come see me. I will give you some things to do which will benefit the kingdom of God. So he says, first thing, having compassion. When you're all of one mind, the first thing you can do is have compassion for other people. Now, having compassion means that you're willing to suffer with somebody else in their suffering. And hopefully, you have someone in your life who is there for you no matter what. Someone you can call in the middle of the night. Someone you can rely on. Especially, I'm, I'm talking here about people that are same gender, people that are in it for the long haul, people that are there to encourage you, perhaps an older person, maybe some, some of the same age. I have people in my life who have been there for me in the tough times. I have people in my life who when I was suffering and I just needed someone to be there, they stopped what they were doing and they spent time with me. And I think all of us should have someone like that in our life, but even more than that, to be that kind of person for somebody else. But that's got to start somewhere. That's got to start with being trustable now in the small things. So that when your friend calls you and saying, hey, I just found out that my friend has cancer. I just found out that my brother got in a car accident. He's in the hospital. Would you go to the hospital with me? That you would be that person that is looking, not at their schedule, but they're looking at their friend with compassion and says, yes, I will be there for you. It's like the Good Samaritan. When he bandaged up that guy, he put him on his own donkey. He got blood on himself. And he paid with his own wages to make sure that person got the treatment he needed. So here's a a thought-provoking question. Everyone look up here for a second. Is it possible, is it possible that our own selfishness is keeping us from ministering to others in need? Is it possible that your busy schedule, which really means that you just didn't do your homework on time, your busy schedule, I'm not there to insult you, I'm just saying, is keeping you from being able to be there for somebody else. Because you're spending time focused on yourself. I can say that knowing it's a fact because I've been there myself. I've been the one who's thinking, oh man, I don't know, like how long is this conversation going to be? Talking with my friends when I was younger. Thinking about myself rather than thinking of others. When people are hurting, are you willing? Is, that, is there a person that is in your life that you don't want to spend any time with because they're annoying? All of us had, when we were in youth group, when I was in high school youth group, there's one kid who smelled bad, was weird, awkward, people made fun of him, and he was just annoying. He would call me all the time. And I'm saying this, speaking as a person who was a teenager, knowing that you guys have someone like that in your life, just a person who was annoying. Always call you and ask you for money. Always call you, ask you for food, ask you to hang out. And just eventually it's just like, come on, buddy. Eventually you got, your, you got to get things together. That's how I felt. But there was a guy who was three years older than me who discipled me. And you know what he did? Every single week he drove that kid to impact. Every, and his car smelled bad after a while too. I'm not just... I didn't, I'm not like making it up that he smelled bad. He actually smelled bad. He didn't care. And I'm thinking, 
this is the testimony of this, this guy. That this guy who's three years older than me, that I looked up to, he didn't care if his car smelled bad. He didn't care if it's inconvenient for him to go pick him up in a different town to drive him to impact. He didn't care if that, that kid would always call him up asking for money. He was there for him, and he was willing to suffer with him as he went through his trials. How many of us don't have that testimony? I don't have that story. That's why I'm sharing someone else's story. But that's something I want to aim for. And I think all of us as a church, if we are all of the same mind, if we're all on the same page, and we are truly looking to give the love of Christ to other people, we should not act as the rest of the world does. Instead, spend time with the annoying people. Spend time with the smelly people. The people that get on your nerves. The people that betray you. The people that lie about you. Those people, you love them. Because that's what Christ did for us. Newsflash, you're a sinner and Jesus spent time with the most sinful of people when he was here on the earth. People said, look at this guy. He hangs out with the drunkards. He hangs out with prostitutes. He hangs out with tax collectors, the people that steal your money. Jesus must be one of them if he's hanging out with them all the time. You think you have problems associating with people and getting lumped in, guilt by association? Jesus, if anything, he never did anything wrong, but people said, well, he must have done something wrong. Look at the people that he used to always spend his time with. Instead, think about this. We as people should be there to comfort one another in our trials. Have compassion. Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane during his darkest hour before he went to the cross, he told his disciples what? Anyone know? What did he tell his disciples? He told his disciples to just stay with him a while. Jesus, the God of the universe, wanted friends to comfort him. And what happened to those friends? Those friends fell asleep. But you know what God did? What the Father did? The Bible records that God had to send an angel down to comfort Jesus in his trial. In the most difficult hour. Because the disciples weren't holding up their end of the bargain. But if that's true of Jesus, couldn't it not be true of us? If Jesus wanted to comfort you, couldn't he just send a bunch of angels whenever? I mean, that'd be kind of cool, right? Like, I'm suffering, I'm depressed, my girlfriend just broke up with me, and God's like, well, here's an angel. Like, yes, thank you, that's awesome. It's like a glowing angel, and they're at my house. That's kind of creepy, but kind of cool. But God, look up here. God made a decision. He said, if I can choose angels comforting humans or people comforting humans, humans comforting humans, I'm going to choose you, the church, to comfort each other. He could have sent any angel, and perhaps he does do that when people are all alone and there are no people around us, but that's the exception. The norm is to be the church comforting one another, having compassion for each other, because we're not obligated. An angel has to. He sent out a can say, well, God, I don't feel like doing it. But we, of our own free will, though we're sinful, though we have our own selfish ambitions and bents and whatever, we say, despite that, I'm going to lay that down and I'm going to go spend time with that person because Christ did that for me. 
Second thing he says is love as brothers. Love as brothers. In other words, treat them like you're your family. Here's another question. Do you exclude others from your group, from your friend group, the clique that you hang around, your squad? Do you exclude others? Because we're all one family and we should be embracing one another. And here's the other thing. Remember Cain and Abel? God asked Cain, where's your brother? What did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, the implication is yes. You are your brother's keeper. And if it's the case that one of you leaves, it's our job to go and find you. It's the job of the older brother to chase after the prodigal son and bring him back. It's our job. Listen, if one of you, one of us, gets pregnant, it's our job to go find that person when they're crying, when they're miserable, when they feel all alone, when they feel ostracized, when they feel like people are judging them. It's your job as the church to show the love of Christ but it does not matter how far away that you run, you can always run home. That God has his arms open wide, that he is willing, not that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's how we are to be acting towards each other, loving one another as brothers. He says next, tenderhearted. Be tenderhearted. In other words, he says, actually feel something when people are in pain. Think about in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, it says, When Jesus went out and he saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. The example that Jesus leaves for us is not this kind of just like, oh, well, you're suffering. Oh, that stinks. I don't know what that's like because I've never suffered. Jesus' example didn't come into the earth. He saw people sinning. He's like, well, it's your own fault. Too bad but to actually feel something for somebody else. How do you get there? How do you get there if someone is hurting and you actually feel something with them? That can be difficult sometimes, especially if you don't like the person. The person's miserable and you're almost like silently rejoicing. They got an F on their test. You're like, yes, they're a jerk. But how do you actually feel something with that person? Because the Bible talks about compassion being an event that happens within you. That you are moved with feeling. That the Bible commands that we are to mourn with those that mourn and, and rejoice with those that rejoice. To feel something with them. The example is not to us just kind of like stand by them and be like, oh, I don't know what that's like. I'm sorry. But to cry with someone else who's crying and sorrowful. How do you get there? Here's how you get there. When you actually love someone, believe me, you will cry when they cry. Not all the time. Like, if I cry, my friends aren't necessarily going to cry. But you know what that's like, don't you? When your friend is so just overcome with emotion over something serious, not like, I got a bad grade. Well, maybe that, that's very serious. I'm not making fun of that. But when your friend loses someone in their life, when your friend is going through a really tough time, I've had people call me and say, I've, they found a tumor. I don't know what to do. And they cried. And when you're in that moment, 
and you actually care about someone, you can't help, but your day is ruined, right? It's because you care about that person. It's because you love that person. And when we love people, we trust people. Here's the key word. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as you entrust other people with things that are really important to yourself, you trust people. Maybe you're not even sure if you like the person, but you just trust that person. You invest in that person. Your heart follows. And so when they feel pain, you feel pain too. Because you've invested in that person. You love that person. And so your heart becomes tender for that person. So be tenderhearted. Not kind of like this, you're over here, they're over here, distance. But I am close in proximity, so much so that if they feel pain, I feel pain. We are the body of Christ. Some of the hands, some of the feet, some of the stomach, some of the ears, some of the nose. But here's the thing. If you got stabbed in the stomach, the hands rush to comfort the stomach. Where you feel pain, the rest of your body is crippled. And that's how the body of Christ should be when a member is in pain. Courteous is the next thing. Be courteous. Now that word can be kind of tricky because the actual word means be humble-minded. But you can see how they got courteous out of that because you will often be rude to people you don't respect. But if you view everybody as above yourself, if you're humble, then obviously you're going to be kind. You're going to be courteous. It's like Philippians 2, 2 through 4 says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So the key here is, when you become a servant, as Jesus became a bondservant, when you lower yourself and you raise everybody else, you lift the horizon, you are there for the benefit of other people, not so you can take from other people, and you're looking at other people that you can love them, and you're following in Christ's example, what it does inside of you is it causes your character to change so that you are courteous, that you are kind. Your attitude changes. You're not rude to people anymore. But that starts from you humbling yourself. Andrew Murray said, Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. He also says, continuing in that verse, verse 9, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. So we're not supposed to be treating other people evilly, do terrible things maliciously. We talked about that a little bit before, earlier in the chapter. But here's a question. All right, we know we're supposed to be on the same page, be one-minded and whatever. What do you do the problem? What do you do if the problem is that everybody else isn't like-minded. I'm doing my best, like seriously, but like that person, they're not on the same page. They claim to be Christians, but they're the ones who are sitting against me. I'm trying to like do this whole like be of one mind thing, like, hey man, let's koinonia. 
Maybe you don't even know what that word is. That's like a Joey Rozak day word. Let's just hang out, man, and like fellowship. But they're always like backstabbing me, betraying me, lying about me, gossiping about me. I'm trying my best to be like-minded, but what am I supposed to do? Be as much of a jerk as them? That's what you're asking me to do? Like go out and gossip just like they are and whatever. Obviously not. So how do you actually do this? How do you actually become like-minded? Well, it happens like this. The solution is that instead of looking at aligning yourself with everybody else, if you align yourself with Christ, you'll automatically be aligned to everybody else that is in Christ, at least. For example, think about a tuning fork. Why do you have a tuning fork? It's so that all the other instruments around in an orchestra can tune to that fork. But here's the thing. As everyone tunes to that one fork, you're automatically in tune with each other. It'd be a nightmare if every instrument is trying to in tune with each other. Like, hey, man, can I just listen to you? Yeah, and like you have 48 other instruments. Instead, you have one tuning fork. Everyone tunes. The tuning fork is Christ. And we're all supposed to be like-minded with him to be aligned with each other. He also says, don't revile, stop that, saying terrible things about each other. But here's the problem I find. Doesn't it feel impossible sometimes to hold back your tongue from saying dumb things, mean things, things that you probably shouldn't say? Isn't it true that your friends, or let's say, okay, let's make it more realistic, your parents say, you're grounded, you can't go out with your friends you can't sleep over. You can't go on the television or play video games, whatever. And you want, deep down inside, I mean like the good part of you, deep down inside you want to be like, yes, father, yes, mother, I will submit to you because I'm like-minded with the Lord. But you don't. You start saying, well, maybe if you're, real, if you're around more often or you just start having, like, you start talking back to them. How do you stop that? You like say it like, oh, now I'm grounded for five months. Why did I say that? Sometimes it feels involuntary. Like you have no control. It's just kind of like, ah. And you want to take it back and you can't. How about this? This is probably the hardest thing for me to do. (laughs) When you're in an argument with someone and you have the perfect comeback. The perfect one. And you can say it. It's right there. Like, if I just say this, it will just, like, mic drop. I'm, I'm done. It's over. And you want to. And you do it. And you're like, oh, that was really bad. Why did I do that? But I feel kind of good about saying that. But you know you shouldn't. How do you hold that back? Especially when it just feels natural. This is why the book of James says, Indeed, we make all, you know, we make mistakes. But if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect. And we could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small little rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. How many relationships have we ruined because we just wanted to look intellectually superior? 
How many friendships, relationships have we damaged just because we wanted to have the last word? It's not worth it. There are very, very, very few battles worth fighting. And most of us have to learn not to revile when people revile us. Not to talk back when people say things that are offensive to us. Why? Because I don't need anything from that person. I'm just here to love them. And if they make fun of me, cool. Because the Bible says here, like, when people persecute you, guess what? That's cool because you get to identify with Jesus who was silent before his shearers. He was silent before his accusers. He was silent before Pontius Pilate, the the Jewish people when they were accusing him, the, the Pharisees. They were all accusing him of terrible things. He didn't say anything. So guess what? People will make fun of you and you don't say anything back. You get to identify with Christ. And that's kind of the point here. Instead, we are to bless. On the contrary, blessing, know that you're called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So we get it. Yeah, be of one mind. Yeah, 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 whatever. Why? Why? I know, like, besides the Bible says so. Yes, I know the Bible says so. But is there anything that comes out of this? Anything in it for me? These people that are mistreating me? Actually, yes. And not just a heavenly benefit. Maybe you're looking for me to say, like, and listen, if you get along with one another, you're tenderhearted, you're courteous, then there will be rewards in heaven. Yay. And you're like, cool. So I'm just going to be miserable for the rest of my life. As people just make fun of me, I don't say anything, nothing happens, and I just lose all my friends, and I just have to give love and give whatever to people, and I never actually have real friends I can trust. Is that what he's saying? No. He actually says this. That when you obey this, when you bless other people, you not only get heavenly blessings, but there is a real life now, a here and now blessing that happens for you. That's why he says, he quotes the verse, but he says, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit, speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he says two things. First of all, you were called for this. You were called to this. You were called to be a blessing to other people. So yes, it's the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he's talking to Peter, right before he sends it to heaven, in John chapter 21, Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Yeah, yeah, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. If you love me, love my family. So we were called to do this. I mean, Jesus himself said this. Not only that, though, but it is in our DNA to bless people. Because God is a God of blessings. We're made in his image. And God has placed those oppositional, difficult people in your life for a reason. You think about that? The same difficult people in your life that you think, if only I could just get rid of this person, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. Ever think about this? That if you were able to get rid of that person, or if you could tear down that person, you may be tearing down the very person that God wanted to use in your life to mature and grow you. You ever think about that? 
if God works everything together for good, and it's through trials, it's through the testing of your faith that produces patience. Don't consider it some strange thing when you're going through this trial, Peter talks about later. If God uses trials to hone and shape Christians, by you getting rid of that person, you're getting rid of the key to growth. You're getting rid of the very means that God wants to use to bless you. I had a friend who talked about how his boss was always getting on his nerves. His boss, like very rightly so, his boss would demean him, just completely abuse his authority, make fun of him, just was always mentally abusive, always getting on his case about everything. And I said this to him. I said, you could do one of two things. You could leave the job and find another job. Or think about this. Maybe God puts you in his life so that you could pray for him, see his life changed, and then you would have a story to share with everybody else. He was, but now he is. He was a tool, but now look at what God has done with him because he has found Jesus Christ. Maybe God has placed you in that person's life to be a blessing to them. By you running away from that, you're running away from the key to your growth as well. And he also says that you'll be blessed. You're going to see good days. Imagine this. Imagine a life. Just imagine for a second. A life free of bitterness. A life free of guilt. Not have to walk around with being jealous or being angry or upset. You could just be free of these weights that you've gathered upon yourself because you don't hold anything against everybody else. You don't have these chains of bondage linked to all these people that you hate. You're just free. All of us know that even the best of meals can be spoiled if someone's hair is inside of it. Even though I never really understood that, by the way. Like, I found a hair in my... I had the most amazing barbecue because that's what this house is all about this past week. This place called Shane's Ribs makes their own barbecue sauce. It's pulled pork on a Texas toast bun. It was so good. And they make their own ketchup. You know a restaurant's really good when they make their own ketchup. It was so good. Anyway, check my Instagram if you want to see it later. But you can't eat it. And there's a little hair in it. It's like, whatever, it's a hair. What I don't understand is people are complaining when there's like a tiny little hair that drops in their food, and like people, they'll, they'll share their food and they'll share their drinks with other people and they'll put their mouths on it. They're like, they don't care. It's like, what's so disgusting about hair? It's like, when's the last time you washed your hair? It could be really dirty. When's the last time you washed your mouth? Because that could be really dirty and you took a bite of it. That's all I'm saying. It doesn't really make any sense. Anyway, well, to, to that point, in the same way that a little hair can spoil even the best of meals, unless it's Shane's ribs, in which case nothing can spoil that. In the same way, a little bit of bitterness can spoil our walk, spoil our growth as a Christian. Also, we got to understand, if we want to see revival, if we want to see good days, days where people come to know Jesus in the thousands, See, people transformed. Even the most bitter, far-out people from Christ come to know him. We want to see revival in such a way that, like, whole cities are changed. 
people are just flooding into churches, then we have to be on the same page. We have to be like-minded. A.W. Tozer said, historically, revivals have mainly have been mainly the achievement of oneness of mind amongst a number of Christian believers. In the second chapter of Acts, it is recorded that they were all with one accord in one place when the Spirit came upon them. He didn't come to them to bring them into oneness of accord. He came because they were already so. The Spirit never comes to to give unity, though His presence certainly aids and perfects such unity as may exist. But the Spirit comes to the company who have, through repentance and faith, brought their hearts into one accord. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you can't wait for the Spirit to bring unity. We are supposed to, as Christians, stir the unity, and when we're all of one accord, the Spirit can come and fill us in multitudes. He also says the, the ears are open, of, the ears of the Lord are open to their prayers. Your prayers will be heard. I mean, that's a benefit too, right? You'll be blessed. You'll see good days. Your life will be free of bitterness. See revival. And God will hear your prayers as opposed to if there's sin in your life. And there's things holding you back. It could reframe your prayers and it could hinder it. As we talked about when we had husbands and wives discussion last time. Last verse and we'll close. So the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, verse 12. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is against evildoers. That's why it's so important to him. And we must learn to hate sin. Not be comfortable with it. If you have bitterness in your heart, you have envy, jealousy, hatred, God wants you to deal with it because he hates sin. And maybe this is a heart-searching question, but many of us have an awareness that our sin keeps us from God. But how many of us really think about the fact that our sin keeps us from relationships with other people? Not only does our sin keep us from fellowship with God, but our sin keeps us from relationships with other people. And so we not only have to hate sin for sin's sake, for what it does to God, but need to hate it because it hurts the people that God has created. So in conclusion, I want to ask you this. What would your life look like if we acted this out? What would your life look like? If suddenly tomorrow you said, I want to take this to heart. And I want to love people around me. Because quite frankly, I'm not like, I'm not dumb. I know you people have fights with each other. And it's not because I'm even thinking of a specific, specific situation. It's because you're human. And so historically, this has always been the case. This will forever be the case. Public school, Christian school, homeschool, no school, everyone's always against each other. Like, what school do you go to? Well, what subject are you interested in? And people are judging each other as if that's what we're supposed to do when we come to church. Instead, what would your life look like if tomorrow you prayed with the person you formerly despised? If tomorrow you started to pray for the person you thought was your enemy? If you sought revival by uniting with people that are radically different. 
Because what brings revival is not everyone liking the same thing by everyone liking the same football team. What brings revival is people being unified under the Spirit of God and then God bringing His Holy Spirit upon His people in power. So I just imagine, like, it just might be really interesting if we just learn to have compassion, be tenderhearted, not reviling, not quarreling, not repaying evil for evil, but instead loving, because we see our job as Christians to lift up other people, not bring them down, not to climb over them, not to see them as an obstacle in the way of what I really want, but I want to please God, and because I want to please God, I'm going to lay down my life for my friends, because that's true love.